Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit litbreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. Litbreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult, romance, and other book genres. That's the Litbreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is largely unscripted. This is prone to digression. Thank you for being here. My name is Brad Listy, and I am sitting in Los Angeles, as usual. Uh, Adele Waldman is the guest today. I'm going to be talking with her momentarily about her terrific and widely praised debut, uh, debut novel entitled The Love Affairs of Nathaniel P. But uh, before we get there, I wanted to share with you a poem. That's right. I wanted to share with you some verse. Uh, the poem is not mine. I didn't write it. It's actually by a poet named Michael Earl Craig, whom uh, I think I've mentioned before. I might have even read one of his poems on this show before. I seem to recall that. He's among my favorite uh, contemporary poets. Not that I have any like vast encyclopedic knowledge of contemporary poetry, but I, I point to him as someone who right now is writing interesting and uh, accessible but challenging poetry. And also funny. I like funny. Uh, 
so yeah, every time I read his stuff, I like it. I think he's really good. And, uh, his, his work registers with me for whatever reason. So recently we ran this poem over on the nervous breakdown.com. Uh, it's called primitive men. And I thought I would read it to you. I am driving up a mountain pass on my tractor, a blue plume behind me when I spot an abandoned car on the side of the road with no license plates. I am just cresting the pass. My speed has slowed. I could almost step off this tractor, I think, and start over and try something totally different, like breaking both my ankles, I think, because stepping off a moving tractor is so different than, say, stepping off your back porch and the car is on blocks and all the wheels are gone. A cop has written all over it with a bold wax marker, indecipherable marks, a kind of code for wrongdoing, a kind of cop graffiti, a performance piece with walkie-talkie, a spirited, campy little number with dress blues and billy clubs. It is not for me to say for I am Bob Taft, driving my tractor over a big hill, past an abandoned car, that reminds me of a man I met once in a bar, who told me he had passed out drunk once, and his wife wrote all over his face with a sharpie. When he got up later, he walked around for half a day, not knowing what had happened, then had buddies over to watch the Rose Bowl, which is what caused him to wait, he said, and he drummed the bar with his fingers as he said this, for almost a year for his wife to get drunk and pass out so he could, quote, take her temperature the hard way. And this, he said, was, quote, just what the doctor ordered, which seemed highly unlikely to me. Who is your doctor, I said. And he looked at me for a long time without speaking. So, um, there you go. That's it. That is the poem. It's called Primitive Men by Michael Earl Craig. And uh, it makes me laugh. And it makes me uncomfortable. And it feels uh, sort of thematically related to today's program. To uh, Adele and to her novel. Um, so yeah, it's like there's humor, there's discomfort, there's this kind of wincing laughter that I tend to gravitate towards. And most of all, I just can't shake it. I keep thinking about this poem. And I keep I, this is how I often react uh, to this guy's poetry. Uh, I chuckle usually with some degree of discomfort, uh, and then I think, and then I keep thinking. And there are images and scenes that stick in my head. So uh, worth mentioning that Michael Earl Craig has uh, several collections of poetry available now in print, and he's got a new one on the way from Wave Books. Uh, it's called Talkativeness, and it will be available in spring 2014. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, 
I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today, uh, once again, is Adele Waldman. Her debut novel, The Love Affairs of Nathaniel P., is now available from Henry Holt. It is an astute psychological portrait of uh, a young Brooklyn author named Nate Piven, who is a rising star in the 21st century literary firmament. And uh, mostly it's about his uh, intimate relationships with a variety of women. It has been called, this book uh, has been called a sympathetic examination of romantic sociopathy. It has been called a dissection, a surgical skewering, a cutting comedy of manners. Uh, You get the idea. There's been a lot of talk about this book and what it has to say about male-female relationships in the current moment. So I'm very pleased to have Adele here on the program, and uh, I figure we should just get started. So here she is, folks. This is Adele Waldman, and her debut novel, once again, is called The Love Affairs of Nathaniel P. That was something that was so important to me in writing this book, of trying to make the character of Nate feel real rather than feel like some idea of a bad boyfriend or guy who was a jerk or a guy who was... The opposite of a jerk. I don't know. Some people like Nate more than others, but but that I want him to have this just mix of good and bad qualities in a way that I just find when you're thinking of real people, people that you dated, whether male or female, it's the, it's so hard to to paint with the broad brush to say someone is wholly selfish or inconsiderate or like they're just they almost never are. And I felt like okay, I want my character to be like that. That um, he can be selfish in this instance, but then. In another instance, he's not, and it's just hard to characterize him exactly. Well, so and at least so, it's hard for me. And, and just so, like, re, you know, so listeners <laughs> get a, you know, get a kind of a broad grasp of the book because I'm, I'm assuming most of them haven't had a chance to read yet. Like, this is a book about, and, and I guess you could describe it better than I, but it's about a guy. Not Bro- necessarily. <laughs> it's about a, Bro- a Brooklyn author um, and his many ex-girlfriends. And, I mean, give people kind of a broad understanding of it. Um, Yeah, so Nathaniel, from the title, he's mostly called Nate in the book. He is a writer, and he's in his early 30s, and um, he'd sort of been not the most popular guy growing up, and he he was sort of smart and likable, but not super popular with women. But, and for years, he was struggling as a freelance writer in New York. But as he started doing better professionally, he's become increasingly popular with 
the women of New York, which um, seems to me fairly accurate, something that happens, um, that yeah, relationship what, between professional success and What popularity. is that? What is that? I mean, I guess it's like just obvious. Like the, there's money and then people like all people want to be near success more than they want to be near failure. It's just like kind of a natural thing. But do you have a deeper understanding of that? Um, I wish I did in the sense that I really don't think it's a good thing. And I think that it's something we should all try to interrogate in ourselves. I think I'm susceptible to it just like anyone else. I don't think I'm above it, but I, I feel like, especially for those of us who, who are creative and who, who value or have some notion of, of making art, I think we should all be so suspicious of our tendency to sort of conflate success with merit and, and sort of, assume that people who are successful have more merit. I mean, I think it's, we know on one level that success can be very arbitrary and there's so many factors and that sort of having something worthwhile to say and being successful are totally distinct things. And I don't know. I think that, that we could just all stand to, to keep that in mind. I don't know. I think, I think we just tend to, to sort of pile on to admire people who are already admired and yeah. I don't know, get to my nerves. Well, you know, and I, I, I look back on my own life and I think that like the nicest, if I'm being honest, I think the nicest that people ever were to me was like right around the time that my book sold. <laughs> <laughs> I hate to say that, but like I remember it distinctly and like maybe like I'm tricking myself and it's because like I had like a burst of, you know, positivity or optimism or, you know, I felt better about myself in that little moment or window of time. But like mm-hmm. people were, gen- you know, generally nicer to me and I could feel people like, I don't know, you know, right. and, and I, I met my wife during that time. <laughs> um, Interesting. Yeah. 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 And I think it can like, it can lead to a virtuous cycle because if you start feeling that, then that probably does make you feel more comfortable and more confident and that reinforces it. So, and I think, I think it's not all the cynical desire that I'm sitting there being like, Oh, well, Brad sold his book. He must, you know, he's worth knowing. But it's, I don't know, it's it's complicated. And I think, I think it's just in some ways troubling. Um, have, people been, but, have people been nicer to you since your book has come out and received all this nice attention? Yeah, definitely. Um, um, I mean, and, and again, not my actual friends, the people I care about, my husband. But <laughs> I feel like it. It's different. I spent the years writing this book uh, working as an SAT tutor, which is a great side job, I think, for being a novelist. But it took me, I think I thought I would be able to write the novel in a year or two, and it took five. So so there are many years, it seemed, of being an SAT tutor, and I turned 35 in that period. And it wasn't like, it wasn't really how I envisioned my life being when I turned 35. Of kind of, as by then, tutoring the younger siblings of the kids I had tutored a few years before and you know, I didn't have an agent. I didn't, I've never published a word of fiction. I didn't know what would happen with this book. And, and, but during those years, after a while, I kind of avoided going to literary parties because I just got tired of people asking me what I was doing and be like, yeah, I'm still working on this novel. Um, and I still don't have an agent. I still don't have a publisher because before that I had done more freelance writing and book criticism, but just after a while I felt like I couldn't balance it with the fiction. And, and I definitely felt like at, at parties, people were less interested in 
a certain type of person was less interested in, in talking to me because he, I was just an anonymous freelancer who wasn't even freelancing. He, he just had some boring side job. And I think now that I have a published novel, that's just different. It gives people more incentive to want to hear what I have to say. And, and I think that's, that's human. I, I don't want to demonize those people, but yet it's very different. It's just my perception of, of being at parties. It's very different from what it was, say, two years ago. And okay, okay. So, and I think all that makes sense. Um, you know, it can be, like you say, it, you don't want to demonize those people. And, at the, and I think in the same breath, I, I would add that, like, you know, I'm I'm no different in a lot of respects. I think it's kind of almost reflex. Like somebody does well, and I think there's a, a, a virtuous part of it. Like you want to wish somebody well. It's fun to cheer for somebody in their moment of glory or whatever. But then, right. You know, then the question is, is there also an element of self-interest in that cheering and in, the, in that Facebook liking and whatever the heck it is that, right. that you do? You know, it's almost like you're making a public show of association with somebody who's a victor in hopes that, like, the glow of victory will, like, shine on your face or something, you know? Totally, totally. And I'm funny, like, there's so much that I think is complicated because it can – things that seem uncomplicated can seem – self-serving from a certain perspective like i don't know one thing i'm finding lately is that that there's so much incentive i think to to be nice to everyone and sort of all writers and to praise all their books because as a writer i know how hard it is to write a book and i admire anyone who does it and and i want to emphasize the positive but on the other hand there's something self-serving about being too positive because it's just going to it sort of serves you well because then they'll be nice to you back. And if ultimately it's not really based on a deeper appreciation of, of their books, it just seems like, wow, I don't know. Like on, on the one hand, I really value niceness, but on the other hand, I'm starting to feel like that has to be balanced with, with some other value because otherwise it becomes a sort of craven careerist activity of just praising people and, it's empty making friends yeah it's empty and yeah it's like it's like the social media version of niceness or whatever after a while it starts to feel um toxic or you know i i just i totally understand what you're saying and you know it makes me think i mean and i think your book addresses this thematically but it makes me think about um narcissism is an overused word selfishness maybe (laughs) um self-centeredness and mm-hmm. that particular quality as it exists among striving artists, but also more broadly, like I find myself really fixated, um, like from a thematic perspective, I guess on like human nature and just like people seem mm-hmm. so selfish to me sometimes. And I feel like it's right. almost like irreversible. Like, and then I think about like just the literary world in particular and how competitive it is and how many people are out there writing books and trying to, you know, have that, um, Haley's Comet success where, you know, they get tons and tons of readers and tons and tons of money. And, um, you know, what do you you think of all that? And like, how do you, how do you manage that sort of stuff in your own experience? Sometimes I think I'm just very cynical compared to, to a lot of people and so cynical that I don't even notice it. And I'm not even bothered by it in the sense that, um, I don't know. I tend to think that people can have a lot of less than admirable qualities 
and sort of still be fundamentally okay. And I guess, like, I think of some of books that I love, like um, The Red and the Black by Stendhal and Julian Sorrell, the, the hero of that book. Some people consider him an anti-hero. He's, he's sort of like noble and idealistic on the one hand, and he's smart and literary. On the other hand, he's really insecure and um, has all this, pride and then it leads him to sort of vacillate and go back and forth between women and and do all sorts of fucked up things yet I totally relate to him and I feel I've I, I don't know I think that um we can we can have just such a, a mix of qualities and there's just there's a lot that I think is part of human nature that I I don't like and a part of me is really moralistic and judgmental and another part of me thinks the same time that that I'm certainly not totally distinct from that and I, I sort of like people anyway I don't know if that sounds like I'm evading the question because at the same time I get totally annoyed all the time by people I think are are way too sort of craven and careerist and, and ambitious I'm, I'm not at all in my personal life or soft on that quality I just I don't know why it's just one that gets on my nerves no I mean I think you're dealing with reality because like you have to I mean that sounds like my mental process anyway. Cause like what I go through is like this feeling of like, Jesus, like people just, they don't care about other people. They're really just in it for themselves and you can see it in their behavior and it's like disappointing. And, um, and then, you know, you can point to episodes in your own life or I can point to episodes in my own life and go, Oh my God, like I do it too. So I've got to work really hard right. to not be that way, to be like more giving and less self-centered and more, you know, outwardly focused as opposed to inwardly focused, which takes work. And then uh, ultimately just, you, it, I guess, I guess the, the desired outcome is one of like compassion, meaning like recognizing that we're all flawed and messy and. You know. Right, right. <laughs> it's, it's tough. <laughs> right, right. But I think that sometimes realizing that and the fact that we're flawed and really realizing that just counts for a lot that, that I don't know, I think that having, maybe I say this and I'm, I'm what I'm avoiding saying is I've been really interested in people's reactions to, to my character, Nate, that a lot of people really, really dislike him. It's, it seems to me, uh, I've, I've been struck by that and I'm not, when I was giving the book to friends as I, I wrote the book, some definitely disliked him. But I have to say they're probably, since the book has come out, I'm surprised by by just kind of how many people really, really dislike him. And and I think it's interesting. I certainly have a very elaborate moral critique of him. But, but I just feel like some of the dislike of him seems to me over the top, like that, that it's not... Like I can, I can totally sympathize with not liking him, but, but that there's some sense of he is not how we wish people were. That that it would be better if if they were simpler. And I don't know that that well, I just. And it's also you know what's coming to mind for me is like he who doth protest too loud or whatever you know like. Right. Uh, you know. I think sometimes maybe you, you sh if a character shows us too much of the parts of ourselves that we don't like, you know, people will slam their fist right. to the table and say, he's awful. He's the devil, you know, and that can right, be, right. be a rough and, experience. 
Right. It's so funny to me, though, because I, I thought I was really critical of him before the book came out. But then when people dislike him so much, I find myself getting defensive of him and sort of protective. Well, I mean, but I think it's probably a positive thing that he's eliciting a complicated response, right? I guess so. I hope so. I mean, yeah. It's, it's not It's not just pure hatred. I mean, you are getting some people who are like, this guy, you know, he's okay, despite his his warts. That's true. That's true. I shouldn't say it's not, it's not everyone. It's, it's the, the truth is, I think it's a lot of, a lot of people on this website, Goodreads. I don't know if you use it or if anyone sure, yeah. uses it. Um, yeah, I feel like for whatever reason, I, I have to stop reading the Goodreads reviews. People on Goodreads really don't like me. <laughs> that doesn't mean they don't like you though. You know, that's, you know, that's not necessarily a reflection. That's true. That was one of the great things about writing as a woman, writing a male character is that in some ways I'm, I feel protected because I'm so clearly not the character. Um, there are ways in which I identify with him and relate to him, certainly, but I feel like no one would mistake me for him. And that, that kind of came into it writing the book, too, that I felt like I could see the character more objectively, like when I had previously tried to write a novel, actually written a novel, but it didn't, it didn't get published, which I'm now very glad of. Um, I think it sort of belongs in the drawer. But but when I previously did it and I wrote from the perspective of a woman character, I think I identified too much with her and it was less objective and kind of using the character to to sort of present a version of myself to the world. And and also I don't know, it's I found that was an unexpected and neat thing about about this book is that it was useful to have a main character who was just neither I nor anyone else would confuse with me. Yeah, there's like a nice little layer of insulation, you know, between you and your readership. <laughs> right. Uh, and so let's talk about that, the experience of writing a male character with such uh, depth. I mean, like, that's not something that uh, a lot of people can do. It's like write well outside of their own gender necessarily. Um, or at least I don't think it's the typical approach. Like, was there a lot of preparation that you had to do or research or... Is it something you felt natural at? Did you grow up with like seven brothers? Like what, what was the um, secret? So I had, I had two older brothers. I do have brothers, but I have to say they're so not like Nate. They're very nice and um, very, I don't know. They, I just don't want to sound like I kind of base Nate on my, my sweet brothers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I kind of think that, that I, I spent my twenties mostly I had jobs and stuff, but I spent all this time reading, and I was really into 19th century novels that are, and some 18th century novels, pretty that were pretty psychological and, and character based, and and I felt like I was learning a lot about psychology. Like I, George Eliot for me was hugely eye opening, and and I didn't really know much, even though I always wanted to write a novel. I didn't actually know much about how to write a novel. I just, but I did feel like I learned a lot about people, and. Um, and then I also, we talked about earlier, dated men. And as women often do, I spent many hours having conversations with my <laughs> friends, male friends, female friends, about the men I was dating, trying to figure out why they did what they did. And then I talked to my friends about the men they were dating. And so I felt like I actually had a lot of insight built up that way, too. And And maybe the novel reading played into it because I remember feeling like, trying to think about things that 
that okay one time this is a bad dating experience i can't believe i'm gonna gonna say it but yeah, no, um, i was gonna say we should do some i want some case studies here so we can all right it. all right so i was dating a guy and it wasn't super long relationship but it was it was serious enough that the fact that he broke up with me over a short email was not at all cool it was sort of like i don't know we've been dating for like three months and he's probably I think he'd like spent the night at my apartment the night before and, and things were tense between us. And then during the next day when he was at work, he, he just wrote an email saying, yeah, it wasn't really working. And maybe he could come by and get the things we left in my apartment later in the week. And on the one hand, this seems totally awful. It is awful. I think it just wasn't appropriate given the, the length of time and, and everything. But on the other hand, I thought it was interesting after I got over being annoyed. And but I think too with that. Well, anyway, I don't think it's anymore. But <laughs> but I could see. I mean, I knew this person. He's not he's not an evil guy. The reason for him to do that was in order to avoid the difficulty of doing it face to face. So um, it was just the way. It's just he can make a decisive decision, get it get it done with. Um, not have to worry that we'd have a conversation that would kind of put it in doubt. You know, it wasn't like he was sitting there calculating what would be the most hurtful and cruel way I could break up with her. Right. I mean, I don't think so. Right. Nothing. No, no, I think and, you're right. Yeah, and I think that was kind of a useful insight, that if you try to imagine the things that people do, that even the ones that are most hurtful to you from from a, from their perspective and just assume that they're not, sitting around spending all their time trying to think about what would hurt you most or, or how to just fuck with your head, that they're probably motivated by a set of things that like we all are, our selfish desire for ease, our, our just a whole set of things that, that might not reflect that well on us, but are not usually cruel and malicious. And that, to me, is like super fun to try to start seeing the world um, I don't know, from seeing things that at first seemed hard for me to understand, but from that other perspective. Well, I'll see, you know, it, it resonates with me. Like I, you know, you ever hear these people talk about how they had like a really amicable, easy breakup with somebody. And I, I like my bullshit detector often goes up when I hear that. I'm like, how is this possible? Like, I get that sometimes people are like buddies and they're more buddies than even romantic partners or whatever. And somehow that mm-hmm. works out. Like I don't discredit the possibility of that happening, but in my, right. in my experience, like whatever, however good intentions are, breakups are almost always messy. Totally. You know? I know. And I think by the time you get to that point of a breakup or even after a breakup, if you're trying to be friends, like your level of trust for the person has afraid so much that you're so suspicious or at least one of the people is suspicious of, you know, so that you stop giving the other person the benefit of the doubt. They, they don't call you when they say they will. And suddenly it feels like a huge blow. Like, you know, whereas if things were cool, you wouldn't think twice about it if your friend didn't call. Um, and I think to me, I think that is a factor. And, and that was something I wanted to, to kind of have in, in my novel where, where something happens toward the end of, of the book with the, with Nate's the relationship he's having where he doesn't respond to an email in a timely way. And in the context, I wanted that to be kind of a really shitty thing that he did. But in the context of life, it's like not that big a deal, not responding to an email in a timely fashion. But I think that 
when you get into these fraught relationship situations, things take on added layers of meaning. Oh my God. Yeah. No, like there can be like, you know, great suspicion born of a two hour delay, you know? <laughs> right. Totally. And, and you know what? I think those instincts are usually pr you know, pretty accurate because everyone's checking their phone constantly. You know what I'm saying? Like right. if someone's waiting two hours and there's some reason to be suspicious, like usually that suspicion is, um, you know, is fairly accurate. There's something going on. Right. Right. Totally. And that's something I think it's just interesting what that something is. Like, it might not be the worst thing you suspect. It might not be out of kind of hatred of you or, or whatever, like something really harsh. It might be out of weariness of you or being more interested in doing something else. And like, so in, in my book, when that happens, the, the delay in responding to an email, um, I think the character, he's just tired of dealing with this girlfriend now ex-girlfriend he just wants to do something that's more fun for him it's not malice he doesn't want to hurt her but it's still significant it's what he is saying is that he doesn't want to deal with that dealing with her feels like a, a pain and it's something he wants to avoid so i agree it's it's a loaded statement where there's smoke there's fire right um okay so like and you have this like you know i think pretty astute psychological understanding of relationship dynamics and probably a deeper insight into the male psyche, um, or at least like the single male psyche of a certain type than, uh, most women or people generally. Um, and like, you know, what do I, I mean, I think that's fair to say, right? I hope that's, that doesn't sound. I like, thank you. I, I, yeah, I just, appreciate that. Yeah. Just take the compliment. It's a good compliment. All right. <laughs> Um, I'll take it. Uh, yeah. Uh, but no, I think what it makes me think of is like, it makes me want to investigate my own psyche and, you know, it, it makes me want to ponder male behavior, which is something that I've been doing, you know, on this program, I think, mm -hmm. you know, in fits and starts with different authors, depending on, you know, who it is that I'm speaking with. But, you know, there's a lot that has been said about uh, sexism. There's a lot that's said about misogyny. There's a lot that's said about feminism mm -hmm. and it gets very sticky and complicated for me trying to understand it you know like right. the, the notion that there could be men who might even you know, like thump their chests and you know say like i support women and feminism but who might at the same time harbor um sexist beliefs or who might behave in a way that's totally antithetical to those sentiments you know like right right that sort of stuff happens all the time and then um, you sort of push all that aside and I think of my own personal relationship history and like how much fear I had when I was a single guy dating about getting a girl pregnant who I knew was not the right one. And mm -hmm. I, I don't hear men like my friends and I don't talk about, we never talked about that very much. And I think I was like acutely afraid of that in a way that maybe other guys aren't like other guys are just like, fuck it. Like I was always like mortified that that was going to right. Well, you know, I have to say, I think that is something I did glean from my brothers. At least one of them I have expressed. Just to the, when I say young age, I don't mean I was a child, but he was telling me inappropriate stuff. But, but a long time ago, I think I might have been twenty. My brother was twenty-six or something, and and I remember having a conversation where he told me that that it, that this was just loomed large for him as as a fear and. And I thought it was interesting. It was one of those moments where a light bulb up in my head is like, oh, I tend to think of 
of women as being the ones who primarily have to deal with this concern of pregnancy. But I can see, especially for a guy who is a caring and moral guy, what a concern this would be to have it be sort of, it's not in your control. And, but especially if you're the type of person who who would feel very obligated, I, I can totally understand that. And I think that that definitely for me animated the, the first scene of my novel where Nate runs into a woman who he has gotten pregnant and who got an abortion. And I, some people think that Nate was just clearly an asshole in that scene. I think it's just more complicated. It's, I don't think it's clear what he could have or should have done differently. Exactly. Um, and I don't know, I, I can sympathize with that, that fear, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And, and I don't think our culture makes it that clear. Well, and I think too, though, but I think at a certain point in like your adult life or my adult life or whatever is that, you know, you come to a point, if that is like a concern for you, um, mm-hmm. and it was for me, is that like once I started dating someone, if I like had like a strong instinct that it wasn't going to be a long-term thing, it was hard mm-hmm. for, it was always hard for me to continue, uh, slash impossible for me to continue. Right. I was like, why am I doing this? Like, because mm-hmm. then there, there could be this risk that like there could right. be a baby and it's like, I can't go there. That seems to me like a, a bad road to go. And I always felt like odd for feeling that way because so many of my guy, <laughs> guy right. friends are just like, whatever, man, go have fun. And like, I was incapable of that fun. I have to say, so I'm going to now put like act the psychological part that I obviously like doing right in the please, book. Please. I think your instinct seems to me really, God, I can't believe I'm going to say this really healthy, but actually a really good one because because I think what it's keeping you from doing is staying in situations where some part of you is feeling like this isn't, this isn't the right one. And that, that I think like it's in some ways, I think it's not just about pregnancy. It's like an internal bullshit detector is going off that, that you're acting the part of being more enamored with the person than you really are. And that I think speaks well of your integrity that that would feel not right. And and you'd want to get out of it. I mean, I think that, gets to one of the the problems that so often comes up I think with men and women in dating is is that one person thinks that the other is more into them than than they are and um and then feels really hurt and betrayed and I think it could go either way um it's not always the guy doing the hurting of course well you know but But, yeah before we get to like uh before we, we say too much about my integrity, like if you could only see, like, if you could only see like hidden video feed of like how I broke up with girls, like I was so bad at it because like, you know, it's just like mortifying to like hurt somebody's feelings and it just right. And isn't it? It's like the fear of hurting someone can make you behave in ways that are so much more hurtful. Oh yeah, you know like, what I mean. Like I mean, I'll you know this is I mean I hope this isn't like too intimate of a detail to share publicly, but like I remember one time breaking up with a girl and like patting her on the head you know just like awful <laughs> shit <laughs> well okay did you do anything as bad as just the breakup over a very short email no i mean no but just like always like always just like ways that like in retrospect i think back and be like god damn it like what a douchey way to do it or like have some more dignity do you know what i'm saying like right right i wish i could have it back i wish i would have handled it with more dignity and been able to confront the discomfort with greater courage. 
totally, totally. And I just, I think that's like the thing that so many of the shitty things we do in regard to other people is that we're trying to avoid some discomfort. And, and I think it often, it feels so bad to, to break up with someone say that, that you want to find the quickest, easiest way to do it. And, and in fact, it's, it might be one that in retrospect is a little bit embarrassing because it, it just, it those, it's like in the moment you feel, it feels so natural. It makes total sense that you're, you're just wanting, you're dreading this breakup conversation or, uh, um, it just, I think there's such an instinct to avoid that kind of thing. And then, but it's really hard to recreate in retrospect. And then you're like, why the hell did I behave that way? Well, but it's, just, it's also a situation though, where you, uh, I think it's a very real concern, especially if you're not interested in hurting someone and you care about the person, even though you know, the relationship's not going to continue is this feeling that like, oh my God, if we, if we talk about this too much, like I'm going to be talked into staying and it's going to just, pro- mm-hmm. it's going to prolong the pain, you know? And so you're right, like, right. I've got to pull the bandaid and then that sort of, and I think that's a real thing, you know? And so totally, totally. That motivation. No, I, can, I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, yeah, especially because most of the time, I think when you break up with a person, you might be 80 percent sure and that's sure enough but or, or even to 90 percent sure but then you're sitting there at the person and they look all sad and then maybe you think of a couple of good times you had it's just so easy to to just wind up getting swayed and that's probably not a good idea like I mean I think as as you know when you're in a relationship that's working and that's happy you don't you're not 90 percent out the door <laughs> right yeah, no, I mean, I should say, like, I always had, like, kind of an innate faith in my ability to know when I had found the right person. And I always kind of felt like I would, like, once I knew, I would knew firmly. And that's exactly what happened. And I guess people say that to you a lot, you know, like, and, and that's not to say that that's everybody's experience. But for, right. for me, it was the case. It was like, ah, and it was like a great relief. <laughs> totally, totally. Uh, oof, I'm, you know, so I'm, I don't miss the old way. Um, right, right. So let me ask, because, you know, this book dives so deeply into relationship dynamics and you, you know, as we said, like, I think you have a pretty astute understanding, uh, of the situation. Like, do you have a sense now having re- written this book and having thought about this stuff over many years, like how should men in particular be like, what's the way to be, <laughs> you know, like, God, um, wow. I, I, I mean, this will sound really Pollyannish. And I, but I kind of mean it is that I just think first and foremost, we should probably all men and women be, be more empathetic and, and to be a little more specific. So that's not such a ridiculous, just general statement. I mean, I think we should all be on guard for the ways in which we tend to deceive ourselves. And that when we do things like bad away, uncomfortable thoughts, like I think one thing we all do a lot is, if we feel guilty or just the situation makes us uncomfortable, we kind of want to blame the other person because it's just too uncomfortable to, to feel guilty often. Um, so we, we look for ways in which they did something to piss us off or it's their fault. And then I think that I don't know, we have all sorts of ways of, of failing to, to properly empathize with the person we're, we're actually dealing with. Um, 
It's a sort of shutting down that empathy. And I, I mean, I hoped in the book that the reader can see it, that the reader can empathize with both Nate and Hannah, but, but Nate in his head can only see it a little bit, or he, his, his empathy is overwhelmed by his other feelings. Um, and I think, I just think we could all do a better job of, of not, of sort of mistrusting our own instincts to the degree that, that our instincts are primarily designed up into, to make us feel better in the moment and not always to be sort of fair and kind. And by which I don't mean in any way that say Nate should stay with the woman he doesn't want to be with or that anyone should. That's not what I mean at all of, um, to sort of, to, to just, um, go along with someone else's wishes. But I think to, to really try to take seriously someone else's point of view and unhappiness and, and act considerately. I think that's but as, it. Go, but go ahead. Okay. Yeah. I wish I had more specific things, but I think it's a really confusing time we live in for, for men and for women that I don't. Well, okay. So let me say, let me say something about my own confusion. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like, I think that there is a strong desire in a lot of men, myself included, to be sensitive to women's issues. And I've talked about this ad nauseum on this show, so I don't want to, like, hammer it too hard. But I think that there is a confusion that comes from trying to do that and uh, be supportive, but also to preserve my masculinity and to be a guy. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and then I also feel like even though I'm trying to be conscious of um, women's issues and feminism and all that stuff and trying to wrap my head around it and understand it in a way that involves empathy, um, I can sometimes get frustrated because it's like never ending. Like, like, like it seems like it's a bottomless thing where like, Every time I turn on my computer and go to the internet, like there's something that like has upset feminists that someone right. has done. And I'm just like, Jesus, like, I, you know, I don't know if there's. Right, right. Be... And I think as a guy, you're in a, it's less comfortable for you, I would imagine, to just sort of roll your eyes at it. Because you feel like by doing that, it's like, are you, are you rolling your eyes because this particular complaint is a little histrionic and not just? Or are you rolling your eyes because you're uncomfortable because you're a guy and you're not sympathetic enough to the cause? Like, I think it's easier as a woman to, to make distinctions, you know, that every feminist claim, or I mean, every claim that purports to be feminist isn't, I mean, sometimes it's just a self-justification or self-serving, but I think that men have a harder time perhaps, you know, kind of discounting certain claims because it can seem like, you know, you're, you're more vulnerable to being called sexist or to even calling yourself sexist i would imagine well yeah yeah exactly it gets, like you start to fall into this like moral loop where you're like almost becoming uh, obsessed with political correctness rather than like paying attention to your own bullshit detector or something like that yeah. right right and i really felt like in writing the book that was one thing that i could do that i just wondered if i have more freedom as a woman than a, a guy might that in terms of giving nate thoughts that are just outright sexist about his perception of women's writing and and just sort of what women generally might be like like he says at one point that he thought in general women tended to be either reasonable or deep but rarely both and i felt like they're just i I felt i was trying to imagine the internal thoughts that no one would ever admit to but that i imagined at least some guys 
have entertained some of the time based on what I've seen of their outward behavior. But I feel like a guy couldn't have written that stuff unless he put it in the head of a clearly villainous character because he wouldn't have wanted to seem as if that's how he thought. But I kind of felt like I had a little more freedom as a woman. Um, and I sort of wanted to put it out there. I don't really think that, that all men think like Nate. But I, I kind of feel like there's it's it's sort of worth talking about a little bit. That, that, and, I, and again, I don't think women are that much better. I think we all harbor all sorts of private thoughts that are probably not in accordance with our political values. And um, That's an interesting point. And, you know, what it makes me think of is that, like, I have friends. I have, like, you know, multiple friends. Like, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a majority of my friends, but... I have like a couple that come to mind who are like vocally and sometimes like hysterically uh, funny, but uh, ultimately like misogynists. Um, Mm -hmm. Like they have a combative orientation towards women. It's like a competition. And like needless to say, like they have, I mean, they date a lot, but like the relationships are always difficult. And it's because it's like they're trying to win or something. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's hard to describe, but like I, I can't help but use the word misogyny because I think underlying that is some sort of anger at women. And I guess I'm curious to know if like you have any experiences with women who are like maybe what's the word for uh, what's the word for women hating men? I don't know what the word is. The opposite of misogyny. Um, right. right. Huh. Yeah, I don't I feel like there is a word, but I don't know it either. What does that say about yeah. both of us? Um, but wait, can I ask you a question to clarify about these men you're talking about? In terms of this competition, is it is it a competition like in terms of a relationship that that it's just sort of if I do what she wants and they're usually traditional romantic things, like if I stay over or cuddle or go away for the weekend, it's a victory for her. And if I assert my masculinity and go out with my friends, it's a victory for me. Is it that kind of competition or is it more like an intellectual competition? I think, I mean, I think it can, I think it can, like the first thing that you said about going out with friends or staying home and cuddling, like that could be, you know, uh, like kind of like a surface level manifestation of it. But like, ultimately I think, the kind of conflict that I'm talking about or the kind of competition I'm talking about is what fells any relationship that fails. And it's like a battle of ego where, you mm. know, I'm going to dominate or I'm going to, it could be an argument about anything or it could be, you know, I don't want to be the one who gets the groceries or it could be, I don't want to live in this neighborhood and you do, or you know what I'm saying? Right, right, right. And, and it's, it's really human stuff. I don't want to sound like I'm totally removed from it because I think we all deal with human conflict. That's what relationships bring to the table in some form, at least. And you have to learn how to work with it. But I think that, you know, I see it and it's always easy, I guess, to see this stuff more clearly when it's happening to a friend than it is to maybe like see it in yourself. Do you know what I'm saying? Right, right. I just wonder, I, it seems so explicit to me. And I just wonder if you have, uh, you know, cause I, I don't hear female friends of mine talking about their man hating friends. <laughs> well, it's funny. Cause now I'm thinking of what you're saying and just wondering if I'm understanding it right. Or if it's to me, something that I would see is universal and you know, both men and women. Like I, I think of, of women friends of mine who have in relationships tend to do a thing of where they they want to demonize their partner's preferences if they don't align with their own. So so just sort of instead of accepting that you know 
you might want to have Thai food and they might want to have burgers and and they're both okay. Um, I'm using obviously a very trivial example, but um, but sort of wanting to 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 sort of find a reason why what he wants is, is kind of ridiculous or bad, and and that what she wants is always right. And, I, and to me, I, I just sort of worry about that when I hear friends doing it. And and I don't mean things like dinner because that's a stupid example. It doesn't even it doesn't even carry over because no one would act like that about dinner. But but about bigger disputes that it doesn't come up in any relationship, like where to live or or whether, you know, like just something like whether your boyfriend should cancel his plans to go with you to an event on such and such a date, you know, things that can feel sort of fraught in a relationship. I, I feel like that unwillingness to sort of see the other person's point of view and to just sort of realize you could have, you could come to a different conclusion without one person being a jerk just seems to me like it, it's just an ego that's wound too tight that, that makes it hard in any relationship because, right, they're always, you know, you're just always going to come up against so many times where, you just want something different from your partner wants and, and they can't always be, you can't always be right and they can't always be wrong. Well, sure. And I, I think I should add too, because I think that like a lot of what we're talking about is just like, uh, it, it's part of any relationship and like, like working through all that stuff and having arguments and trying to get better at resolving them quickly and not speaking in anger and all that kind of stuff. But uh, I think like the, the kinds of guys I'm talking about are guys who will have those kinds of arguments. And then, <laughs> you know, in the context of discussing them, make like broad sweeping statements about chicks, <laughs> like, right, right. You know, like women and like, and sometimes it can be really funny and I have to confess that I'll <laughs> laugh because you know, they're angry and they're pissed off and they're like, you know, there's always some grain of truth and like, um, a stereotype right. or whatever. So it's not like I'm sitting here condemning and like, you know, wagging my like superior moral finger. It's more just like an observation. And, and it's also me, I think as a concerned friend, wondering what the end game is here in terms of a relationship for these people, because I can't see how it's going to work. Like knowing what I know about, um, you know, how challenging relationships are, you know, and right. how, much, how much work it takes. Like, it's just like, at some point, that approach is just going to hit a wall every time. You know? Totally, I know. I really think that male sexism is can can really fuck up relationships, but it, in all sorts of ways. I mean, I think exactly the, the type of sexism you're talking about. But that, like, I think, on the first level, it can, in terms of who one chooses to date, and I think that there there probably are a lot of men who who don't really see equality as a necessary value. And a partner that they kind of that they want someone who they can talk to. He's not an idiot, and he's attractive, but who, on some deep level, might think that that kind of what you want in a girlfriend and a woman is is not the same kind of things you want in in a guy friend, um, or or that you don't need all that other stuff. And I think there's a lot of sexism that goes into that. And then when you're in a relationship with someone, you don't you don't really respect enough that like, I don't think people in relationships have to have the same intellectual interests by any means, but I think there's just some basic level where the relationship's going to be better. If you can have this moral respect for one another, that, that you feel like their point of view on something might not be yours, but you sort of take for granted that it's going to be one that, that you respect or think is reasonable because you just respect them generally. And I think 
that's the first thing that's wrong when you're in a, and I think men do it all the time. They're in a relationship with someone they fundamentally think is, is sort of a bit more trivial than they themselves are. Yeah. And then, and, and, but I, sh- I want to add, because I think like this just occurred to me and I think it's a, a good thought to add is that like, I think some people, men and women mm-hmm. like consider their gender, like a team. <laughs> <laughs> And like, I don't, I really don't. Like, I don't think like I'm a guy and like I'm on the guy team and like it's right. the guys versus the girls and you know, like, but I think some guys do that. And I think some women do that, you know, where it's right. like, we're the women and it's like, we're the men. And it's like, no, we're the people. And like, I don't know. I think that that's like a really uh, precarious foundation. You know? <laughs> right. Totally. Totally. I feel the same way in terms of this kind of, yeah, wanting to embrace something more universal and and I think that's true like even with writing a guy character like I don't want to sound like I'm evading it but on some level I really do think I hope that I as a novelist I what I want is to empathize not just with men but with people and that it was fun to do it from the guy point of view but it's like I think the same thing that goes into it in my mind is it wouldn't creating any character of just sort of trying to imagine what the world looks like from that that point of view you know what I mean? That like, I hope it turns out. I hope I write other novels and they're not all from the male point of view, because <laughs> I'd like to think the empathy goes beyond gender. That it's more to the human experience than than one or the other. Well, sure, yeah. And so, and you know, a question that I want to ask, and and then I want to get uh, to like your actual writing practice before I let you go, because I always like to hear how people actually do the work, but. Um, sure. In terms of like the response to the book, um, mm-hmm. you know, I think I mentioned earlier, it's gotten a lot of nice responses critically, and uh, I'm sure there's a lot of chatter on Goodreads about it. But like, do you have a sense gender wise of who's responding to this book? Is it more of a, a female audience? I mean, I know women tend to read more than men, you know, broadly, mm-hmm. but like, do you have a sense for the readership of this book? Um, not like the public readership. And in some ways, I hope, I hope I'd never do like, I kind of want to insulate myself from stuff related to sales as much as that is possible. And I don't know how possible that is, but it just seems like a dangerous road to go down. So you don't, you don't, check, your, you don't, you don't check your Amazon ranking or anything like that. Um, no, I've definitely checked the ranking and I <laughs> kind of wish I had stopped, but I haven't, I guess there's this page, Amazon author central where you can get more detailed sales numbers. Right. And I haven't done that. Um, and I haven't had to ask my editor about it. I, I don't know that I will continue to not do that, but I hope I will. <laughs> I, I just feel like it's not a good road to go down. It doesn't seem like a good one psychologically. It's, but but so leaving that aside, I, I don't know. I mean, even if I went on Amazon Author Central, it certainly wouldn't break down readers by gender. So so that's kind of neither here nor there. But I have to say, and just what I'm hearing, I have found the response to be incredibly heartening in that it seems to me both men and women are, are reading the book and I'm going by things like people who write about it on Twitter or have written me emails and um, it I've just I've, I found that to be a relief I think one of the worries that any woman novelist has especially when she's writing about relationships is sort of your book being pegged before you've even started as, as women's fiction and which something wrong with women's fiction except if it means men won't read it which just yeah that doesn't I so I was always worried about that and and I think um 
so far, from what I can gather on a very small sample of this book, of the people who've approached me personally, or even the people, the writers who blurbed my book and the various reviewers, is that it seems to be a pretty even gender mix. And, and that's been definitely a relief. Well, that's good. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was sort of, in, I guess in my head, I had it like 65, 35 women to men, but you know, that's just, and that actually mirrors, I think the actual broad reading public, uh, right, right. So maybe, you know, maybe it is. I think like, you know, I think that, um, I guess maybe guys would be more, would face more discomfort reading a book like this than women. Like, or maybe not. I don't know. I guess it could maybe yeah. be like an equal opportunity offender. <laughs> it's true. I definitely get a lot of discomfort both ways. And I think that the men talk about, like I always thought it was funny and the, the authors who blurbed my book, I think there was like four men who did. And the first three, they used some phrase like wincing with recognition, cringing with recognition or, Hmm. Wince, cringe. Well, there was one of recoil or um, shudder. Right. So then, when the when the fourth author came along and he sort of offered a blurb, I wasn't sure if this was appropriate or not. But um, my agent told me, and I was like, "Hey, that's so great. He's awesome. I'm thrilled he went the blurb. But could you maybe mention that if you could just not talk about like having a reaction of shuddering and pain, <laughs> like just for variety's sake?" Um, and um, but so. That has definitely come up a lot with male readers, but their their reaction is discomfort relating to Nate. But women have a lot of discomfort too, and I think the same kind of discomfort I felt when writing the book of finding Nate's thoughts chilling and sort of imagining, like, whoa, what if guys that I have dated or am dating or will date <laughs> are capable of of looking at me over dinner and thinking these really shitty thoughts about like just being so critical of in the book it's hannah's appearance like they're just mortifying thoughts for a, for a woman and i know that because i did mine my worst fears um so i don't think i think women are uncomfortable for a different reason of relating like that women are uncomfortable because of the idea that men are like nate and men are uncomfortable because the idea of they themselves being like me. So what you're saying is you found a way to torture everybody, which is uh, yes, an achievement. Yes. <laughs> and I swear in my personal life, I, I think that most people would agree I'm, I'm a pretty nice person. And well, no, you, get yet, it. you get it out in your art. I get it. You know. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about the making of this book. You, um, you mentioned earlier, I believe, that it took you five years to write it. And it doesn't, did you do an MFA or it sounds like you maybe just came at this in an autodidactic way, like just reading books and Yeah, I, I didn't do an MFA. Um, I was a journalist in my 20s, like a, a newspaper reporter for a while and then a freelancer and writing book reviews and stuff like that. And I, I did go to journalism school, so I guess I have, I can't say I have no writing training um, for what that's worth, but um well, no, and I should but, say, yeah. I, I want to say, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but like, I think that journalism training, uh, you know, even though the profession is kind of fraught right now in terms of how to make a living and, you know, how fragmented it's become. But like, I think that for, especially for people who have to be self-directed, um, to have a journalism background where you're so deadline driven can be of use because you get, you know how to get shit done. <laughs> right. No, I absolutely think so. And I think... For me, when I graduated from college at the age of 21 or so, I, I moved to New York 
and I had this idea that I was just going to be a waitress and write a novel. I don't know why that just happened very easily as soon as I wasn't fettered by, by school. And I did become a waitress, and I did realize I was no more able to write a novel than I had been while I was actually in college. And um, and then I didn't like being a waitress, and I wound up getting a journalism job and then going to journalism school, et cetera, et cetera. But I do think over those years, I went from being the kind of person who imagined that fiction writing would happen when I was in when the moment was right and I was inspired, and then it would just come out and be perfect, to realizing that writing was something that you can set goals and meet them and and yeah exactly what you're talking about the sense of you could say I'm gonna write a story about such and such a thing and actually do it that was kind of a revelation for me okay and so and then you mentioned earlier as well that you wrote uh, and completed a novel that never uh, reached the printed mm-hmm. page uh, which is a common experience for people but like how was the experience when it was happening with like did you take it out and horrible try- horrible okay <laughs> Good. <laughs> um, I mean, it was, yeah, it was devastating at the time. So, so yeah, what happened was I, I was 29 and I quit this job I had. I was writing a column for the wallstreetjournal.com about 20-somethings, personal finances. It's actually uh-huh. really boring, I have to say. But, um, and the last column I wrote was about how I was quitting the column in order to go live at my parents' house and sub up my apartment in New York and, and work on a novel. And I think making such a public declaration might have been useful because then I kind of had to follow through. I'd never managed to finish any piece of fiction before. So I spent six months at my parents' house and I actually did it. I wrote a novel with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I think I was just so excited about that that I couldn't see the difference between that euphoria and the novel itself being good. Um, which I, I just think one of the reasons this one took me so much longer is because I would just go back and revise so, so much. Um, but but I was excited. It's not, it wasn't terrible. It has a coherent story and coherent characters. And um, I immediately sent it to agents. And I started to get my first inkling. It wasn't quite as good as I thought when most agents said no or wanted serious revisions before they would look at it again and then reconsider. But one agent said yes, and she was not very experienced with fiction, which should have said something. I don't know that she'd ever sold a novel, although she's a legitimate agent and sold nonfiction. Um, and, but she liked it as it was, so I signed with her. And then it, it was just over a period of six months or so that she sent it to publishers. I, it started to dawn on me that everyone was saying no, and it wasn't going to get published. And it felt horrible at the time. And I never probably would have said that in retrospect, I um, I never would have guessed then. But I would say now, which is that I'm very glad. I, I feel like I learned a lot from that novel. I don't think it's entirely terrible, but it belongs in the drawer. It was, it was a novel that taught me that I could write a novel and I learned a lot about how to do it. But I'm just sort of glad the whole world doesn't have to see my early effort. Well, and I'm sort of glad that there was like some sort of like, uh, it sounded like you were inside of an airplane during that little, uh, anecdote. And then it, it ended just as the anecdote ended. That was kind of perfect. You know, <laughs> I think a lawnmower went by. Oh, is that what it was? Okay. I think so. Um, and so when you, then you said you, when you were, we were, you know, we're working on, um, Nathaniel P you slowed down, which makes sense. You know, like once you realize like, Oh, like it's, 
it's got to be good too. (laughs) It doesn't, it's not just about being done, you know, it's got to be like really, really good. Um, but then were you working every day? Did your schedule allow for that? Like how meticulous and routined Mm -hmm. are you, or was it more sporadic than that? Um, it depended on the year of those five years. When I say five years, it's five years from when I started it on a train on the way to Montreal to, to when it got published, which was like a week or two ago. So basically that was only, to be accurate, maybe four and a half years of active writing or editing. I don't want to exaggerate my toil, which I, I think I did a little bit inadvertently. But the first year I was writing it, I was working as an SAT tutor and I was writing book reviews for various places. And I was teaching a nonfiction writing class at this school in New York, Gotham Writers Workshop. I felt like I had 17 jobs. And when the SAT tutoring, like each student in a way, it's like it's, they're paying you well and, and it's like a job in itself. I'll email with questions at um, various hours. I... The first year, I think I only wrote three chapters or something that seemed absurdly little and not a good pace when it's like, well, this is what I want to be doing. At this rate, it's going to take me a decade. And what I would do is I liked having all day to work on on fiction. I didn't like doing it for an hour between SAT clients. So that just meant there weren't that many days I could do it. That it's just I tried to structure it so there'd be like one day a week where I didn't have any other obligations, but also with SAT tutoring, it'd be, it would be on weekends too. So even just having a full day, a weekend day wasn't always that easy. So, so after that first year, I decided to stop um, the, the nonfiction class because it didn't pay very well and, and stopped writing book reviews, which was slightly scary to me because that meant that it was just an SAT tutor with a Microsoft Word document. Like as long as I was writing book reviews that showed up in decent places, I could feel like I had some claim to legitimacy in the world's eyes. But on the other hand, it was making so little progress on the book. So I think the second year I got a lot more done on the novel. Um, And then, and then the same, probably the, the third year. Yeah. I don't know if this is, too much detail or not enough, but, well, did but you, I, let, me, let me ask you this. Did you ever think about quitting? Like, was there ever a moment along the, the path over those five years where you were like, this is a, this isn't working. I've got a bail. Yeah. There was a time when I, I really was afraid and it was, I was stuck in the novel's plot. I was sort of about halfway, maybe a little more than halfway through what is the current novel, but the first draft. And, but I always had the exact same plot, although I just went through many, many drafts after. But um, I was trying to show the decline of a relationship. I wanted it to be very realistic and very, very ordinary. There wasn't going to be any revelation of cheating or just some strange thing. Like it was just the dynamic was going to change. It was going to get a little, a little tedious and and just sort of get get worse. I found it was the hardest thing to, to try to dramatize. And I, I just remember trying and trying to write scenes and chapters and, and just writing one. It was actually the, the summer my husband and I got married. And I, I gave him the latest chapter I read, which, I, uh, which I'd written. And I knew I didn't think it was very good. But on the way up to Maine where we were getting married in the car, he, he sort of 
told me what I expected to hear, which is that, yeah, he didn't think that the chapter was working. And it was what I did is I made the couple sort of having a meal in which they, it was all about like, talking about the problems they were having, but it just felt too expository. Like nothing was being dramatized. It was just the reader was being told, wow, things aren't as cool lately. I wonder what's going on. <laughs> right, right. But the problem was, it's like I knew, I knew Evan, my husband was right. I felt this way too, but I had no idea how else to do it. And, and then I had to go get married and that was distracting. And then we went, we drove across the country on our honeymoon and it was actually a ton of fun. But in the back of my mind, I just felt like when I get back to this novel, it's just like basically the only thing I'm doing for the past two years, other than tutoring, like, I don't, I don't know if I'll be able to solve this problem. And, and that was kind of scary. And then I got back and, and this crazy, strange thing happened. I think I've been working on this thing for maybe almost three years, and I got back feeling in a state of despair. And I just kept playing with that, I think, that chapter that I didn't like. I took a few sentences, a few bits and pieces that I did like, and, and other fragments here and there, and I started arranging them. And then I came up with something I liked. And then, not only that, I started seeing the whole rest of the novel, and I basically wrote after spending like two and a half years on the first 150 pages, I wrote the next 150 in like two months. Wow. And it was crazy. It was like a definitely a sort of like hypomanic time where I wasn't sleeping that well and I was sort of keyed up and I was a little irritable when I had to be tutoring because I just kept, I just wanted to write all the time. I was seeing all these scenes and moments and, and I don't want to, idealize it like then I had to go back I mean it wasn't it wasn't all perfect and I there would be another two years of revising it wasn't like it all came out exactly right but something definitely happened it those almost all the scenes that I envisioned in that two-month period that spurt are in the final novel just very much worked over there's the lawnmower again I apologize <laughs> well you know what I'll take that as our cue um you know it sounds like after all um after all of the difficulties and after all of the, um, you know, bumps along the way, you've landed in a good spot. And I, I hope you feel proud of the end result. I mean, is no, it, is it are, I mean, do you? I mean, I, I, think before I, do. We, I think before we came on the air, you're like, you know, it's, it's a little bit uh, crazy to be going through all of the, you know, the marketing part of it and answering emails and it's hard to maybe wrap your head around the fact that you've actually done it, but you have actually done it. You've written right. a, a novel that's that's doing well. Yeah, no, and I, I am, I mean, I, it's such a relief. I have to say, like, just in some way, I don't want to pretend during, during those years of writing the novel and not having, um, I mean, until a certain point in, an agent and all that, or just sort of the backing of some institution and feeling like it's just growing older and tutoring, that definitely got to me. It got under my skin. I'm I'm hugely relieved to have that there's something legitimizing about a published novel. Um, but on the other hand, it was also for me the writing. It was really really fun, and I'm a little nostalgic for for the time I spent when I could just be in the characters' heads. And I think I hope it's as fun again. What, what, and are you working on something else? Or are you just kind of waiting to get out of this you know publicity cycle mm -hmm. before you you jump back in? Yeah, I think at this point I can't do almost anything else. It's just like 
And also, maybe I'm just an anxious person. And just like a year ago, my, I would get so few emails. Like my emails would be from my husband or a couple of my close friends, like logistics, like what time should we meet tonight? <laughs> what do you want for dinner? And like, it's just, oh, I mean, some emails that are super nice, like people I haven't seen for years and years who take the time to, they picked up the book and they bought it and they're in a nice email. And I'm so happy about each and they each deserve a response. So I can't imagine having the, the mental space for to do, especially cause I like to get really immersed in writing. Like I like a full day with doing nothing else. Um, so I look forward to it and I hope that maybe in a few weeks wow. I'll have more days like that. Well, sure. Well, uh, I'll keep my fingers crossed for you. You know, then again, it's Thanks. like, you know, to constantly have people emailing you to tell you how much they loved your book is a good problem to have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't want to complain too much. I'm really, I am really happy. Well, I congratulate you and it's been really fun talking with you and uh, I, I wish you all the best of luck on the next thing. Well, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. This is really fun. All right, you guys, there you go. That's Adele Waldman. Go get her book. It's called The Love Affairs of Nathaniel P. And it is available now from Henry Holt. You can find Adele online at AdeleWaldman.com. She's on Twitter, at Adele Waldman, and she's also on the Facebook. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as usual, for the good music. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. And, uh, hey, don't forget to get the app, the free official Other People app. It's available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's the best and most elegant way to listen to this program. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline. Uh, You can favorite your favorite episodes, and you can access premium content and the full archives as well, all via the app. So please go get that if you haven't done so already. The app itself is free. Uh, otherwise closing thoughts, I I felt like that interview, uh, was sort of intense relationship stuff, you know? Uh, but uh, the truth is that, you know, I think that was sort of by design. Adele wrote a very finely wrought psychological novel about relationships. And, uh, I figured why not go there? So, um, you know, I hope it was okay to listen to, I'm sure that there are some of you out there who uh, might be searching for a relationship or who might find yourselves uh, mired in a troubled or tenuous relationship or a nebulous (laughs) relationship. So maybe this was helpful. Maybe not. I don't know. Maybe it left you terrified. Please remember that Joseph Cornell lived with his mother all of his life and that George Eliot played the piano. That is it for now. Thanks for being here. Thanks again to Adele Waldman. And uh, I appreciate you listening. So uh, I hope you know that. I'm glad to be in a relationship with you. A platonic uh, podcasting relationship. Though I must say that uh, lately you have seemed a little distant. (laughs) 